So you come to hear about a special case. <laughs> Traveling salesman was working his territory down around Athens, Georgia, and came to a farmhouse way out in the country. As he went to knock on the door, he happened to see a pig in the front yard. What was unusual about this particular pig was that it had a wooden leg. The farmer, Farmer Jones, came to the door, and before the salesman went into his sales pitch, he just had to ask, hey, what's the story on this pig with the wooden leg? Farmer Jones answered, he says, well, you see, this is a very special pig. About a year ago, I was out in the field, and I was attacked by a pack of wild dogs. And this pig heard the commotion and broke down the pig pen fence and came running across the field, chased every one of those dogs away, and saved my life. Salesman says, wow, that was great. So I, I guess the pig was uh, injured during the attack, and, and that's why he has a wooden leg. Well, no, said the farmer. The pig came through that without a scratch. Well, well then, what accounts for the pig with the wooden leg? Well, you see, this is a very special pig, Farmer Jones answered. About six months ago, the house caught fire. My family and I were fast asleep upstairs. The pig broke down the front door, came charging up the stairs, woke us all up, got us out of the house, saved our lives. So we said, oh, okay, during, during all that, the pig injured his leg, and, and that's why he has a wooden leg. He said, no, no, said Farmer Jones, uh, came through the fire without a scratch. Well, what accounts for the wooden leg, the salesman asked. Well, this is a very special pig, said Farmer Jones. Just last month, I was plowing in the field and got too close to the river. My tractor turned off over on me. I fell in the river. I was trapped underwater. This pig, I, I don't know how in the world she did it, but somehow she was on the scene. She grabbed me by the collar, pulled me out of the water, and saved me from drowning. Salesman says, oh, okay, so while that was going on, the pig got injured, and that's why he has a wooden leg. No, said the farmer, in fact, the pig came through that without a scratch and even a little cleaner from swimming in the river. <laughs> well, exasperated, the salesman at this point says, well, I understand this is a special pig, but what accounts for the wooden leg? Well, Farmer Jones answered, you see, mister, if you own a pig this special, you just don't go and eat him all at once. <laughs> Farmer Jones had a very special pig, but I don't think he showed his appreciation for how special that pig was quite the way that the pig deserved it. So how would you treat a special pig? We would never do what Farmer Jones did. But I wonder, in a way, if we're not just like Farmer Jones. We need to look at what we have that far surpasses anything we could possibly imagine, our relationship with Jesus, and see if we're showing the proper appreciation in the proper ways. I pray that we are. The writer of Hebrews begins the letter talking about how much better Jesus is than any alternative. The key word in Hebrews is better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is a better sacrifice. Jesus, a better high priest. The promises in Jesus are better than the promises of any other being. When talking about angels, the writer talks about how angels were in submission to Jesus. And often we think that angels are above us. 
And that's, it helps us draw a very important conclusion. If we think angels are above us and special, and they serve the Lord, how much more should we pay attention to making sure Jesus is the Lord of our lives? In Hebrews 2, verse 1, the writer summarizes, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proves unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Verse 3 asks a very important question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we don't treat what's special in the way that we should. What does it mean to neglect our salvation? In the first verse, he says we have to be careful that we don't drift away. After a while, I'll offer the standard invitation to anyone here who might need the help of the congregation. And I seriously doubt that anybody will come forward and say, no thanks, I'm leaving the fellowship of Christ. I don't think anybody's going to say, you know, I don't know what I believe, but this isn't it. I'm out of here. At least I hope that won't happen. However, I suspect that there might be someone here tonight, I hope not, but I suspect that there might be, or somebody associated with the congregation, who will, little by little, slowly but surely, drift away. And let me be clear, when the writer of Hebrews talks about drifting away as drifting away from a relationship with Christ, our salvation is in Christ, and if we drift away from that relationship, and this is important, to the point that the relationship ends, we point blank lose our salvation. That's an incredibly sobering thought. It drives us to ask the question, well, why do people drift away? Why do people not appreciate how special our relationship is with Jesus? Perhaps they don't really understand how great a salvation we have and how special it really is. Perhaps they, perhaps we, don't really understand the blessings in Christ. And not understanding, we're far too susceptible for giving up on Christ. If you tune into the various TV channels on Sunday morning, you quite often hear what's been called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is basically the teaching that if you give your life to Jesus, you will be blessed with all kinds of good things. A better house, a better car, better relationships, a better job, everything in abundance. In fact, John, Jesus says in John 10.10 10, that he came that we might have life and life abundantly. And the prosperity gospel preachers preach that. But I'm not sure that they understand what, he, what Jesus really meant by that. Many people want to hear the prosperity gospel. It's very appealing, isn't it? It sounds great. Yes, I want more. I want all of the good things in life, and if Jesus is the path to getting all that good stuff, man, I'll certainly follow him. But is that what Christianity really is? Is that what we should expect as Christians? More stuff? Lots of times the book of Job is used as an example of the prosperity gospel. Job was faithful. True, he lost his family, all of his possessions, his friends, his health, 
But in the end, they point to Job chapter 41, starting with verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all of his brothers and all of his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house. And they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He was indeed blessed. People use this as a proof text for the prosperity gospel. Follow Jesus, remain faithful, and you'll get your reward. More stuff. Let me tell you, God's blessings are important to me. It's a big deal for me. I'm astounded by the riches that have been made available to us. And I want those blessings. But if we're only in it for the physical blessings, if our understanding only goes to what Jesus can do for me to make my life better, to make my life easier, to make my life more comfortable, I miss the point. And from a very practical standpoint, we also miss the real substance of the real blessing. I'm afraid that that may be why people do drift away, because they missed the real blessing. Was Job rewarded for his faith? Did more stuff, twice as much as he had before, constitute a suitable compensation for all that he went through? Did having a new family make up for the family he lost when he saw his sons and daughters killed? So he wound up with 6,000 camels. How many camels does one man need? If we think that Job was rewarded in this fashion, we miss the big picture. We miss the point. If you gave Job the choice, if you said, Job, I'm going to take away all your wealth. I'm going to take away your family. I'm going to take away your health. I'm going to make you miserable. But if you remain faithful, I'm going to give you God. Do you think Job would have taken that deal? Would he have made that trade? I wouldn't. Would you? I'd say, Lord, I've got enough stuff. I like my family. I don't need the aggravation. No, I think I'll pass. It's not about more stuff, more physical blessings. Our reward, if you want to call it that, the real answer to what's in it for me that most people miss goes much deeper than stuff. As an aside, when we were talking about Job in a class a while back, Candace Keaton offered something very insightful stuck with me and will to the end of, end of my days. Remember that Job's friends all came to the conclusion that bad things were happening to Job because he must have done something really, really bad. He must have sinned. When asked about why God restored Job's wealth, Candace said it wasn't so much a reward, but rather it was done to prove that Job's friends were wrong. His new wealth and family constituted testimony to Job's righteousness. And of course, God wanted to bless Job. But I thought that was extremely good insight as to why Job was blessed. He wasn't blessed as a reward for all that he had suffered. As a country, we are incredibly blessed physically. The population of the United States is just 4.5% of the entire world. But we possess over 40% of the world's wealth. If our message is to sacrifice your life for Christ, to take up your cross and follow Jesus, 
and you'll be more successful, and you'll get more stuff. No wonder we're losing ground. People have so much of what the world considers success and so much stuff now that they're not going to change, at least substantively, just to get more stuff. But if we want to look at what we really get out of our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with God, we only have to look to Jesus for that. In Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The substance and the real blessing to be gleaned by being a Christian is submission and service to God. All of the fabulous blessings that we have in Christ that I like to talk about so much, blessings that are ours for the taking, derive, they have their root in submission and service to God. And that was the same for Jesus. And in the next three verses of that chapter in Philippians, starting with verse 9, it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So what are our expectations as Christians? What should we be looking for? What is the real blessing? What is the blessing that makes our relationship with Christ so special and worth the sacrifice? Let's look at some examples in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Chapter 11 talks about Abel and Enoch and Moses and Abraham, and you're all familiar with all of those stories. But picking up in verse 32, it says, And what more shall I say, for the time will fail me if I talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, but put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might, might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourging. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Man, that doesn't sound like the prosperity gospel to me. So what should we expect? Is this abstract for us? Is there something more substantive here than just the prospect of getting more stuff? How did these people maintain their faith? How did they keep from drifting away? They could have just walked away and avoided all of the turmoil. What was their secret? In verse 13 it says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them, the promises, and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Physical blessings pale in comparison to what these folks were looking forward to. They realized that this world was not their home, that they were just passing through. They were just passing through. Their short-term persecution paled in comparison to what they saw in their future, their real home. 1 Peter 5.10 says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But in addition to what we look forward to in eternity, and some preachers will talk about, oh, well, our reward is in heaven. Well, that's not true. There's something very special of great significance to Christians right now. And it's not more stuff. Having their future secure and assured, the people that we talked about, their relationship with God enabled them to live, to approach the challenges they faced with great confidence and success. They truly were more than conquerors as we are. Maybe we think that what we read about in Hebrews just doesn't apply to us, that we're the exception to the rule. Let me tell you, uh, some Christians today think we should not be persecuted. Perhaps we think that the Constitution, that the fight for religious liberty in this country will protect us and keep us from persecution. Those are false hopes. That's not going to happen. Maybe we think that what we read about in Hebrews just doesn't apply to us. But let me tell you, if you don't see persecution in this world, if you don't see Satan at work in the world today, if it doesn't impact you to the point where you cry out, Lord, please help me, something's wrong. Something's wrong with your walk. We are promised persecution. We will face persecution. That's a fact. And in the face of persecution, we need to have the same confidence, the same resources that sustain the heroes of faith that we read about in Hebrews. And that confidence is available to us. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35, it says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous ones shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. We're not going to drift away. Acts 4.13 talks about Peter and John before the rulers of Israel. And it says of Peter and John in verse 13, Now as they, these rulers, the elite, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. The rulers of Israel saw in Peter and John something amazing. Here were two unsophisticated, uneducated men testifying about Jesus among the elite with great skill, with great confidence. When we talk about living a confident life in Jesus, we're not just talking about a change in attitude. We're not talking about, I think I can, I think I can. Something that's a mental game that we play. I can be confident. No, it's much, much deeper than that. The confidence we have in Christ, like the confidence that Peter and John demonstrated, was not just an attitude. 
It was based on God-given competence, God-given ability that enabled Peter and John, and enables us today to meet the challenges we face. This is something very special, to be equipped by God in all the ways that we need to be equipped to deal with the world effectively and successfully, no matter what the challenge. That's a blessing that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. And that's a blessing that sustains my faith. Going back to Job, that was his real reward. His faith was shaken, but it was not broken. He knew what his job was. When you think about Job, think about Job's job. We'll play on words. What was his job? He had the same job that the rest of us as Christians have. And Jesus told us what that was in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 37. Somebody said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. To serve and to glorify God, that was Job's job. That's our job. If you told Job that he'd suffer horribly, but it would be to the glory of God, would he have taken that trip? I believe he would, because he understood three important things. One, that God would enable him to endure the challenge. Two, that by enduring the challenge, he was demonstrating his love of God with all of his being. And that by doing so, he would bring glory to the Father. And three, that by enduring, by remaining faithful, he was securing his eternal home, his eternal future, eternity being with God the Father. Job also knew that in spite of all of the, how severe his test had been, he knew that it was not going to be his last, that he would indeed be tested again. We often don't think of that. We often think of Job having been tested, he succeeded, he had his conversation with God, and he went along and lived happily ever after. Didn't happen that way. That's not the way it works. We will be continually tested until the day we die as we go through life. Job was continually tested. But Job knew that he was better prepared, he was stronger, he was better equipped, his faith was greater than he had been when all of this started. And he knew that he was prepared for the next challenge that arose in his life. He had great confidence in God, the same confidence we can and should have. And that's the blessing, that we can live competent and confident lives in Jesus. We started out asking the question, what would you do with a special pick? That's a simple question that applies to a lot more than just pork. And you really don't need to know anything about the pig answer that question. The answer is embedded in the question. What would you do with a special car? John's not here, but say a Porsche 911 camera what? <laughs> or what would you do with a special piece of jewelry? Or a special relationship? A special friend? Or a special wife? The answer is obvious, and again, it's embedded in the question. You treat special things in special ways. With special care, with special consideration. Let's not take special things, any special thing, for granted. Let's treat them as special. Most of all, let's recognize what's special about our relationship with Jesus. 
And let's not neglect that relationship. If you need the help of the congregation in any way, if you need to establish a relationship in Christ by putting them on baptism, I don't think there's anyone here that needs to do that tonight, but if the congregation can help you in any way, why don't you make your needs known and together we stand and say.